If you have your Bibles, please turn with me to Ephesians chapter 4, verse 28. We are an expository preaching church, meaning we go verse by verse, and as I said, sometimes word by word, and we teach the Bible. We merely expository preaching, again, as I say, it's merely reading the text, explaining the text, and applying the text. That's as simple as it takes. And God, the Holy Spirit, does His work through this process. The title of our sermon this morning is Living the New Life, Part 2. We finished Part 1 last week, and if you want to get a CD, request a sound booth, you can also find it on our website under Resources and Sermons. You'll find all the sermons in the book of Ephesians. It's Living the New Life, Part 2. And we're going to be in Ephesians chapter 4. Verse 28, a survey states that given the opportunity, not only will 30% of the population steal, but will also create the opportunity to steal whenever possible. 40% will steal if there is little danger of getting caught. Only 30% won't steal at all. Kent Hughes, the great commentator, he writes in his commentary, he quotes from a paper given at an American Psychological Association Symposium on employee theft. Mentioned of all the losses incurred in stores, retail stores, 60% was due to fraud and theft by employees. According to National Retail Security Survey, all kinds of theft, shoplifting, vendor fraud, administrative error, cost U.S. retailers $46.8 billion in 2017. It was $31 billion in 2002. And all of this affects the price of consumer goods. Who's paying for it? The consumer. You and me. Here in Ephesians chapter 4, Paul is reminding the believer that they have been taken out of darkness. They have been taken out of darkness and they have been brought into the light. And so we no longer are to live like the Gentiles lived. He has exhorted us to put away falsehood that's lying of all kinds. And we are to speak the truth. Why? Because we are members of one body. And then in verse 26, we are to be angry. Yes, righteously though. But never let our emotions get into that and become unrighteous anger. And in process, sin. And why? Because when we do that, we are allowing the devil to get a foothold. And on the same token, in verse 28, Paul says, We who are stealing should steal no longer. 
Now in all of these verses and in the next week, we will see a common thread running through Paul's commands. Do not live like the Gentiles lived. That's your past tense. If you're a believer, that's your past tense. If you're an unbeliever, if you haven't put your faith and trust in the Lord and Savior Jesus Christ, that is your present. We should no longer live like the Gentiles. And and people who live like the Gentiles for habitually practicing, and I say habitually practicing, that means present continuous tense. Every kind of impurity are not Christians. And we see that in First Corinthians chapter six, verses nine through ten. If a man is characteristically or continually, or if a woman is continually or habitually living in sin, it's a living proof that he or she is not a Christian to begin with. Not that a Christian will not fall into temptation, but someone who is persisting habitually in sin is giving evidence that he's not saved to begin with. Let us come to our text today. It says, let the thief no longer steal, but rather let him labor, doing honest work with his own hands, so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. Before we get into the text, let me give you four um, clarifications. Let's... Let's put it down. Number one, we are to rejoice over the great and glorious gospel of our Lord and Savior Jesus Christ. The gospel is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. The gospel can save people from any and all kinds of sin. The gospel is not just for good people. It is for sinners. And it is while we were yet sinners that Christ died for us. Second, when we become Christians, it doesn't mean that all of our sins are eradicated forever. I mean, if you notice, these commands in Ephesians chapter 4 were written to Ephesian church. These were believers who were born again. Saints and from the image of God is restored. And it is to these people that Paul is writing, let the thief no longer steal. If you look at it grammatically, we'll see that in a moment. It, it actually means they were still in the act of stealing. It was a church that came out of the pagan background, a pagan culture. They did not grow up in Sunday school like you and me. They were not in church every single Sunday. They never knew what church was. They were just pagans worshiping the pagan gods. 
And having lived in this Ephesian culture, these men and women were steeped in lying, in anger, and stealing. This is what they did all their lives, and now they got converted, and they became Christians. But what they did was they just brought their cultural behavior, their normal behavior that they saw as normal, into their Christian lifestyle, and it is to these people, as Paul is writing, do not live anymore like the Gentiles lived. And as they got saved, and as they were enlightened, as they were regenerated, and this is why we find it imperative to come to church, because this is where we taught the Word of God. And as they were being taught the Word of God, and as Paul was pouring into their lives and instructing into them the Word of God, they were able to deal with those besetting sins, with those sins that they lived by the power of the Holy Spirit living within them. They were able to grow in their sanctification and become more and more Christ-like. I remember as a young Christian, when I was working for the airline industry, it was normal for me to call in sick if I didn't feel like going to work. Or if I had other plans. But one day as I was studying the scriptures and, and as I was going through it, someone convicted me of that behavior. And I confessed it and walked away from it. Beloved, there may be behavior patterns in your life today that may seem normal to you. But as you submit to God's word, and as you come under the convicting ministry of the Holy Spirit, you will see that those sinful behaviors, very clearly, because that's what the Holy Spirit does in you when you are saved, you are coming under the convicting power of the Holy Spirit. You will confess them, and you will repent of them, and you will live your life for God's glory. As we grow spiritually and as our inner man is being strengthened, we'll become more and more sensitive to sin in our lives. So we can safely say, it is not that we will never sin, but we will sin less and less as we grow in our Christian life. Sin will never be and should not be a habitual pattern in your life. Nor will you take grace as a license to sin. The third thing we need to remind ourselves is that Paul is not telling here in this passage that somehow if you stop stealing, you'll and become honest people that you will somehow become a Christian. A person cannot do anything to become a Christian. Only God and God alone can change a person's heart. Only God can do the work of conversion in a person's heart. The Apostle Paul is not giving us a list of do's and don'ts to become a Christian. Keep in mind that Paul is speaking to those people who have been transformed by the gospel. 
So these do's and don'ts are in the context of God's redeeming grace, not to get redeeming grace. Is that clear? Only those redeemed by the grace of God can live in this way. People who have died to their old self, people who have put on the new man, Paul is telling, God has saved you by His grace, and this is how people transformed by the grace of God will live their lives. No longer like the Gentiles, but instead, as Paul gives us here in verses 27 all the way through 32. And today we are just looking at verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. But rather, let him labor doing honest work with his hands so that he may have something to share with anyone in need. We see that there is a negative command and we see a positive command. We also see that the purpose of following through this is that you may have something to share with anyone in need. So let's look at Three headings that come out of this passage. Stop taking what belongs to others. Verse 28. Are you working hard with your hands? Verse 28b. Are you sharing with others? Verse 28c. Let's look at the first heading. Let us stop taking what belongs to others. It says, let the thief no longer steal. The word thief means the one who steals. The stealer, Paul says, should now no longer steal. The second word steal there, that you see there, is a verb. It's a, it's a present imperative, meaning it's a command, plus grammatically it's got a prohibition there. Now, as you think through this, it's not just Paul saying, do this, he says, don't do this. That means the action was ongoing, and it needs to stop. To whom is Paul addressing this command? Well, as we saw, he's writing to Ephesian Christians. Some of them lost their seasonal jobs, and they were out of work, and they had no assistance. There was no welfare programs in those days. And such workers would be tempted to steal. Why? In order to survive. And Paul therefore reminds them that they must no longer steal. What is stealing? Well, it means to take something that doesn't belong to you. Like stealing money or maybe other physical goods. It could mean you're stealing time, stealing someone else's ideas. Martin Lloyd-Jones, he writes... Stealing is taking possession of anything that belongs to another, and that is not really yours. To possess it, and to regard it as yours, and to give the impression that it is yours. Why must we stop stealing? Because the Bible says stealing is a sin. Eighth commandment, Moses' commandment of the Ten Commandments, we see it clearly. We are commanded not to steal. Well, what are some ways we steal? As one preacher said, I quote, 
Stealing is when you use your employer's resources to conduct your affairs. Arriving to work late, leaving early, taking unjustified six day, sick days, extensive socializing with co-workers, turning the water cooler into a conversation pit, inattention to the job at end, reading novels and magazines on, on the job, operating a business on the side during working hours, eating lunch at the desk and then going out for the lunch hour, excessive personal phone calls on the, on the job, daydreaming, fantasizing, long, frequent coffee and snack breaks, Unquote. We steal from our employer when we do not give the best work of which we are capable of, or when we waste time or consistently leave work early, or when we cut corners. This bothered me big time when I was working at the local school, and in a sense working here at the church as well, working full-time and working full-time there. I once spoke to my principal. I said, it really bothers me that I have to take calls for the church and make church-related decisions during school hours when the school was paying me to work for them full-time. You see, stealing is not paying your utility bill on time. Or your gardeners on time, as a matter of fact. Stealing is underpaying your employees if you're having a business. Failure to pay to another that which is his due. Not filing income tax, sales tax, or other taxes. These taxes technically belong to the state. And by right, it belongs to someone else. And when we withhold it, we are guilty of stealing. Stealing also includes non-payment of debts. Not paying home, home mortgage payments, credit card payments, student loan payments, medical debts. Uncontrolled consumer debt is the number one reason for stealing today. It, it begins with families not able to live within their means. Families that have growing desires, not needs. And, and they cannot manage it with one job, and so they have to work overtime and sometimes multiple jobs to provide for their desires. It goes back to the idols of their heart. I mean, why go and spend $800 on a TV at Costco when you have a $10,000 debt looming over your head? Oh, why buy that $1,000 fancy barbecue grill when you have an unpaid $20,000 student loan debt or why go on that $1,500, $1,500 vacation when you hardly have money to give to the Lord? Please, would you turn with me to 1 Corinthians chapter 16? Verse 2. On the first day of every week, each of you is to put something aside and store it up. That's a command, by the way, in the Greek. You are to put something. It's not an option. And store it up as ye may prosper 
so that there will be no collecting when I come. This is Paul's command to the, to the church there that we are to give regularly to the Lord. And I find it an irony that even believers do not have the ability to give this regularly to the Lord, but they continue to max out on their credit cards and gather new debts. Their heart is not in the right place, my beloved. That's a form of stealing. Stealing also includes false, making false statements on your income tax returns. By failing to report the income you made during the year. You probably got some cash payments. And not reporting that is a form of stealing. If you are in the business, overcharging your customer for what you make or for the service you render is again stealing. Beloved, have you borrowed something from someone and not returned it? That would be stealing. Men, and I don't want to stereotype here, forgive me, men. I say, beloved, when you sit and play those video games for hours together, you're stealing from your family. I mean, when you sit in front of your television set and watch game for hours together, and you do not have time to study your Bible, you're stealing from God. How many hours do you spend looking at your social media? The new iOS app lets you know. Think of all the things you can do. Let me put this in perspective. I mean, do you have time to read your Bible and study your Bible? Do you have time to read theologically sound books so you can disciple another brother or sister? Do you have time to play with your children? Do you have time to finish your household chores? Maybe take that extra time to plan out on some home-cooked meals so you can stretch those hard-earned dollars instead of eating out every single day when you don't have the ability to do that. Or maybe even planning on creative ways to spend time with your spouse. Now, now don't get me wrong, beloved. I'm not saying you ought to be an ascetic and, and be like a monk in a monastery doing nothing but pray and studying your Bible. That's not what I'm saying. I mean, by the way, let me give you on a sidebar the schedule of a typical monastery. Here is a monk who woke up at three in the morning, went out to chapel for prayer, and then chanted 14 psalms, and listened to two long readings, one from scriptures and one from the church fathers, then followed by private prayer, then returned to the chapel back at six in the morning for mass, and then there's a short period for food and personal matters, and then back to the farm to, to do their chores, and then followed by prayers, and then followed by writing of scriptures, and then followed by long sermons. That's not what I'm alluding to. Is your life being used for the glory of God? 
We steal from ourselves when we waste the time, talents, or resources God has entrusted to us. Now, if this were not enough, let me give you a quote by Martin Lloyd-Jones. Dr. Martin Lloyd-Jones writes in this passage, If you happen to be working for a firm, and you spend a part of your time trying to evangelize a fellow worker, that would be considered stealing your company's time. He writes, You have no right to use the company's time to evangelize another soul, even though it's a great and noble thing to do. I have no right to do it in the time that does not belong to me because it is my employer's time. So in other words, if you want to evangelize in your workplace, do it during your lunchtime or do it after your work is over, in your own time. Lastly, we steal from God when we fail to worship Him as we ought to. When we set our interests before His, or when we fail to honor Him by our lives, or fail to tell others about His love for us. As a matter of fact, we are stealing from God when we fail to use the resources He has given us for His kingdom. Why do people steal? Let's examine our own hearts through this. People steal because they're selfish. Maybe, maybe you're preoccupied with the things of this world. First John chapter 2, verses 15 through 17 says, Do not love the world or the things of the world. If any man loves the world, the love of the Father is not in him. Maybe this person loves the world so much that his heart is not in the right place. Matthew chapter 6 verses 19 through 21 says, Do not lay up for yourselves treasures on earth where moth and rust destroy and where thieves break in and steal. But lay for yourselves treasures in heaven where neither moth nor rust destroys and where thieves do not break in and steal. So yes, we steal because we are selfish. It's all about our desires. We steal because our heart is in the wrong place. And how do we know our heart is in the wrong place? We'll be more concerned with the temporary things in life to find satisfaction and and happiness and joy. Only if you could get a better car, then you'll be happy. Only if you could get a better home, then you'll be happy. Only if you could get more wealth, then you'll be happy. Only if your financial portfolio was where it was needed to be, then you'd be happy. You see, what you've done is you've built your life around your investments, your real estate, your expensive toys, like your boat, your cars, your bikes, and that's where your immediate satisfaction is coming from. It's become a idol of your life. You're no longer trusting in God for your future, but you're putting your trust in those earthly commodities. Isn't this what Paul wrote to the the church? Um, Paul wrote to Timothy, actually, 1 Timothy chapter 6, verses 9 through 11. Let me read that for you. He says, But those who desire to be rich 
fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. And then he goes on to say, for the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. But as for you, a man of God, Paul tells Timothy, flee, run away from these things. So we steal because our heart is in the wrong place. Then we steal because we are lazy. Or we desire to get rich quickly. Some people cannot hold on to their jobs. You know why? Because they are lazy. They are not disciplined. They cannot get along with people. They are not reliable. They are headstrong. They don't want to submit to their bosses. And for all these reasons, they cannot hold a steady job. They would rather prefer to go on some welfare program than finding a job that will get them a fixed wage job and bring food on the table. Now on a sidebar, beloved, there are jobs that a Christian must not do. Jobs that will put you in a place of compromise and temptation. Don't be in a job which causes other people to stumble and sin. And if that's your case, look for another job. Trust the Lord to provide another job for you. That's what Paul says here in verse 29, verse 28. Let the thief no longer steal. Let's go to the second heading. That's a positive command. Are you working hard with your hands? It says, but rather let him labor. Doing honest work with his own hands. That's the positive command. He begins with a contrasting conjunction, but, or rather, but instead. That's what he says. What must you do? Labor. The word labor there, in the Greek, it means hard work. Toil. It means working to the point of exhaustion. It's back-breaking labor. It's sweat-producing labor. It's such a labor where you go to bed at night and you have no problems falling asleep. And Paul continues here in verse 28. He says, doing honest work with your hands. When you read passages such as 1 Thessalonians chapter 4, verse 11 2 Thessalonians chapter 3, verses 10 and 11. 1 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 12. We find Paul writing that I work with my hands. And he says, you need to work with your hands. Labor with your own hands. Work is to be done with our hands. Working with one's hands is the correct conduct for believers. So in a sense, while the thief is using his hands to gain something that is not his, Paul says as believers, we are to use our hands to do honest labor, honest work. Psalm 128, verse 2, we read, You shall eat the fruit of the labor of your hands. And he says, You shall be blessed. And it shall be well with you. 
when you labor with your hands. You know, folks, work is characteristic of the God of the Bible. The God of the Bible is a worker. We see the God of the Bible in working in creation, in providence, in sustaining us, in controlling us, in judging us. God is at work in redemption. He's at work in the world. Jesus is also at work. When Jesus came to the earth, he said in John chapter 4, verse 34, he says, My, fa- my food is to do the will of my Father who sent me. That means he was working. In John chapter 5, verse 17, he says, My Father is working, and I am working. So Jesus is a worker. The Holy Spirit is a worker. We find the, the Holy Spirit in the book of Genesis hovering over the waters. We see the Holy Spirit does the work of conviction. We see the Holy Spirit is doing the work of regeneration. So when you look at the Trinity, you see God the Father, God the Son, God the Holy Spirit are all involved in working. Work is part of their character. And since we are made in the image of God, guess what? We work as well. But some people, people think that work is a curse. They believe that work was a result of what happened in the Garden of Eden at the fall. No, my beloved, work existed in the Garden of Eden even before the fall. Man was created, man and woman were put in the Garden of Eden to take care of the garden, to tend and to keep it. The fall did not introduce work. It just changed the nature of work. John McCarter writes, He says, the fall of man changed work from being a righteous blessing to be a righteous blessing and a curse. Work is a God-appointed function of human life, he says. And so man should accept it without complaining. He says, it is the will of our Father in heaven that we should labor. Work is a divine ordinance, he writes. For the life of man. So we are commanded to labor. Exodus chapter 20 verses 9 through 10. It says six days you shall labor. And do all your work. Psalm 103. Sorry Psalm 104 verse 23. It says man goes out to work. And to his labor in the morning. And he does it until evening. So six days you shall labor, and then you go out to work in the morning, and you labor until evening. This is how God ordained work for man. Work is God's way for us to extract goodness out of God's creation. But what happened after the fall is now we have to fight against the curse to extract God's goodness out of God's creation. The work is supposed to be done with our hands. Now, when it comes to work, there is no less work, less important work, and more important work. All work is work. In fact, what about Jesus? He was a preacher for three years. But before being a preacher for three years, you know his profession? He was a carpenter for 20-odd years. William Tyndale, he writes, If you look externally, there's a difference between washing dishes... And preaching the word of God. But as touching to please God, there is no difference at all. This is the biblical view of work. 
There is no difference when done to the honor of the Lord between preaching and washing dishes. Whatever we do, it's all work for the glory of God. No one better job and another lesser menial job. Paul continues in verse 28 and we come to the last section there. See, and the heading is, are you sharing with others? Are you sharing with others? And he says, so that, that's the purpose clause in the Greek, hina, the hina clause. So that, that's the reason why Paul wrote this. It's interesting how he writes verse 27, 28, 26, 27, 28. Everywhere he says he gives the reason, he gives the positive, negative reason, and then he says why we must do this. This is how morality works in Christianity. It's not just don't do this and do this. Why you do this is for this reason. So that you may have something to share with anyone in need. This is Paul's principle of stewardship. We are to stop stealing. We are to start working so that we can be now stewards of what the Lord has given us. The thief looks out for his own interests, his sense of entitlement. The believer, on the contrary, is a steward of all that the Lord gives him. He gives back to the giver with a capital G. And God, in turn, helps him dispense it to people that are in need. In verse 28... As it says, you stop stealing and you work hard so that it says you may have something to share. You may have is in the present tense. That means you may continually have something to give. It's not something you do once and then forget it for 10 years. It is something that you do regularly as an aspect of your life. It's characteristic of your life. The reason we get is to give. Now, let me show you something interesting there. The Greek word here in verse 28 for give is the word meta didomi. Meta didomi. Meaning give a part of or give a share. The usual term for give in the Greek is didomi. That means give away everything. So if you had a slice of cheesecake, and if your pastor came to you, you just give him that entire slice. It is his. Paul did not use the word didomi. He is not saying, well, here, folks, work hard and give away all you have. That's not what he's saying. He uses the word metadidomi. That means you give a portion. You share a portion of what you have with others. Instead of hoarding up everything... Give away something. A person may say, I have $3 million in my 401k. I have a couple of rental properties worth 2 to $3 million. I have a million dollars in saving. Paul is not saying, well, you shouldn't do that. It's wise if you are having the ability to work and save up. It is good. It's wise. What he wants to know is, what do you do with a portion of your funds? 
How are you sharing it with people who are in need? This is what you have to do. Stop stealing, work hard with your hands so that you can share with those in need. Romans chapter 12, verse 13 reads, Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Again, one is to help fellow believers. That's what it says, continue to contribute to the needs of the saints. It does not mean that Christians are not to help other unbelievers. It doesn't mean that. But the primary responsibility of the Christian is to help those of the household of faith. I like the way John Wesley put it. He says, work work as hard as you can, make as much as you can, and then give as much as you can. That's what John Wesley said. Giving as much as you can. John Piper, he writes, there are really three options regarding work. You can steal to get, you can work to get for yourself, or you can work to get in order to give. And John Piper says, Paul is commending the third option. That you can work to get in order to give. Let me walk you through some passage here in closing that will help us put all this in perspective. Would you please open your Bibles to 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9. 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 9 says, For you know the grace of our Lord Jesus Christ, that though you was rich, yet for your sake... He became poor, so that you, by his poverty, might become rich. You see, that's a gift of God. Christ gave himself for us. Second Corinthians chapter 9, verse 15. Paul says, Thanks be to God for his inexpressible gift. That's a gift of salvation. You see, folks, our God is a giving God. He gave the most astounding gift to us, the gift of salvation. The only way you and I can be givers is when we keep God's grace in front of us. You'll be motivated to give when you think about God's giving. One preacher said, There are two ways you can tell if you have lost sight of God's grace. Two ways. One, he says, your giving will become more of a duty than a delight. And second, when you give inconsistently and insufficiently to the Lord's work. Do you want to know if you have lost sight of God's grace? If you have lost sight of God's grace? Look at your bank statements. How much of that did you give for the Lord's work? How much of that did you give to fellow believers who are in need? Let me give you a few pointers on this, my beloved. Look at 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verses 1 through 5. And I'll close with this. We read here that Paul gives us some pointers. He said, 
Generous giving applies to all people, even to the poor. Generous giving applies to all people, even to the poor. Read with me in 2 Corinthians chapter 8, verse 2. It says, For in a severe test of affliction, they were going through hard times. They were poverty struck. Their abundance of joy and their extreme poverty have overflowed in a wealth of generosity on their part. They were willing to give in spite of their poverty. Second, look at me in verse 3. Generous giving is sacrificial. Verse 3 says, For they gave according to their means. And giving according to their means, we've looked at this in Ephesians chapter 1. God giving us His grace according to His riches in Christ Jesus. According. It's a millionaire walking on the street and pulling out a dollar and giving to a poor man. That would be from His riches. But according to His riches, would be pulling out His checkbook and writing out a $25,000 check for that man. That is giving according to his riches. It says, For they gave according to their means, as I can testify. And beyond their means. Do you see there? Beyond their means. Isn't this what Jesus told of the poor woman in Mark chapter 12, verses 41 to 44? The poor woman, the widow came in and put two small copper coins, which make a penny. And Jesus called his disciples and said to them, Truly I say to you, this poor widow has put in more than all those who are contributing to the offering box. Next, I want you to look at me in verses 3 and 4. Generous giving is voluntary, not pressurized. Not pressured. It's not twisting your arm. It's voluntary. Verse 3 and 4 says, For they gave according to the means, as I can testify, and beyond their means of their own, what? Accord, right? It was voluntary. And why do you think they gave it out of their own accord? Because they kept the grace of God in front of them. They understood God's inexpressible gift of giving, and they were able to give because of that. And verse 4 says, Begging us earnestly for the favor of taking part in the relief of the saints. Do you see that? They were poor people, but they were saying, Paul, please give us the privilege to be a part of the giving. They were begging for the opportunity because they understood the grace of God. I'm wanting to tell you folks, Beloved, generous giving looks to God for the money to give. Because that's what 2 Corinthians chapter 9, verse 8 says, God is able to make all grace abound to you, so that having all sufficiency in all things at all times, you may abound in every good work. God will give you if you so desire, so that you can give to others. You probably heard the story of George Muller. George Miller is known as the missionary prayer warrior. He did not ask anyone for his orphanage support. It is said that he, 
He supported 2,000 orphans through prayer without making his needs known. But did you, did you know this side of his life? He gave away 86% of his personal support to support 10 missionaries overseas. 86%. George Muller could have become wealthy and he could have lived in luxury, but instead he gave. Let us work hard and look to God for our finances. So in turn, we could be, speak to me, we could become givers. Amen? Let's bow our heads. Gracious Father, Lord, even as we prepare our hearts for communion, we pray, Lord, that you would be glorified in and through our lives. We know this is a tough message, a tough sermon in the culture we live in. Lord, we pray that we can't do this, we cannot do this without your transforming work in our lives. And that you would do your work. That even as we feel convicted, Lord, that we would do so. So that we work hard to become givers. To give to others in need. And help us to do that. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.